All right, Book of Romans, chapter 8. I know it's been a long time. I'm just going to sit here. No, I'm okay. I'm going to leave the sound booth now. All right. Romans chapter 8. I know it's been a long time. For those listening online, please be patient because you may have listened to the last part an hour ago. But everyone here, we haven't studied this doctrine, or we haven't studied this since September the 26th. Right? So that means what? That means you're not going to remember anything, okay? So I hope you remember, right? But when we, there's no going to be easy way to ease back into this. So we're going to just do a lot of review and a lot of covering, asking a lot of questions. But let's remember this. We're in Romans chapter 8, and we have been studying what in Romans chapter 8? Six words. Everybody remembers that. That's good. All right. What are the six? Well, first of all, what verses cover the six words in question? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse... 29, and the last verse that's used to give us the last word is verse 33. Okay, very good. Now, the first word is foreknowledge. Second word, predestination. Third word, called. Fourth word, justified. Fifth word, glorified. Sixth word, election. Okay, now, what makes this section so powerful in the argument that it's trying to make. I know I'm phrasing that maybe in a way that you can't, you may, may not understand. Let me, let me ask it this way. If these six words were just separated throughout the Bible, they would not have the impact that they do, but because they're linked together, one leading to the other, a lot of the attempts to get around these words fall apart because you're not looking at six words that are just mentioned separately in the Bible. They're put together. Can we refer to this almost like a chain? Yes. And it all begins with what? Foreknowledge. Now, the text identifies what is foreknown here. Is, is a action foreknown? Is a choice foreknown? Or is people foreknown? And how do we know that it's people? For whom he foreknows. Okay, so right there already gets us there. Now, he foreknows something. Now, the people he foreknows, what does he do with the people he foreknows? He predestines. Now, this is very important. If the foreknowledge was simply God looking through time to see what you're going to do, he wouldn't need to do the second step. Because if he sees what you're already going to do, he wouldn't need to pre destinate to predestinate is to predetermine right so he foreknows people he predetermines those people and that predetermining leads to what a calling and we talked about the effectual and general call yes right then we go from the calling and after so he foreknows some people he predestines those people he calls those people and those people who are called are justified. So clearly the calling can't refer to a calling that goes to everyone or everyone would be justified. Clearly the foreknowing can't be of everyone because the people he foreknows, he justifies. Obviously the predestination can't refer to everyone or everyone would be justified. So immediately we know we're onto a subject that's going to create a lot of controversy and make a lot of people upset. And people really get upset. They get so upset, and, they, and, they, and they'll just immediately start quoting random verses. I mean, whenever I get the emails when people want to start arguing about this doctrine, it's so frustrating because they'll just like, what about this verse? What about this verse? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or whosoever. And they're like, well, slow down, slow down, slow down. First of all, you don't think I know John 3.16? Okay? They always quote the verse like, you know, like, I'm going to be like, you're right. I didn't know that was in the Bible. Okay? Obviously, you have to take all of this into consideration, right? Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nobody denies that scripture. But that scripture doesn't immediately just throw out scriptures that talk about foreknowing, predestination, or election, right? And the doctor, the verses that talk about election don't immediately throw out John 3.16, correct? So that means there has to be a way to bring 
both of them together and have a cohesive theology. And people sometimes don't want to have those discussions. They just want to go, my verses trump your verses. And, I, and, they, and the other side says, my verses trump your verse. No verse trumps the other verse. The verses have to be understood together. So what, what did we end with in September? We were in what, part three and studying which word? Election. And we were relying heavily on Grudem's systematic theology. Well, if we relied on it heavy before, I'm going to just lean on it today to at least try to get us to some conclusion if we can, and at the same time bring everything together. All right? Does that make sense? Okay, so when we started studying the doctrine of election, what was the first thing we looked at? Before we got to the doctrine of election, we spent some time looking at something. It's a list. Order salutis, or the order of salvation. Everybody remember that? Okay, I'm not going to read the order of salvation right now, because that can lead to, again, another hour of review, okay? But we looked at that. Everybody got that? And how did we define election? We gave a very specific definition. All right, for those online who did not hear that, let me repeat what was just said. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. What are the key elements of this? Number one, it's an act of whom? We don't elect God. God elects us. Any attempt to say, no, 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 God, gave, God elects you because you chose him, that's ridiculous. Why would God elect me if I'm choosing him? I would be the doing the election. Right? Who elects the president? No, and, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's the church answer, okay. I do understand that God appoints all those in charge. I'm saying from a human perspective, who elects the president? We do. The president doesn't elect us. We elect the president, right? We don't elect God. God elects us, right? Does that make sense? All right. I want to make sure everybody, everybody understands that. It's an act of God. And when does it occur? Before creation. And what is involved in this act? Choosing. Now, this is where everyone loses their mind. Chooses. What's the next word? Some, everybody loses it right there, some people to be saved, and then this is big, not on account of what? Of any foreseen merit. What is typically the foreseen merit that people apply to election? What is the foreseen merit that most Christians you know apply to the doctrine of election? Your foreseen faith. You believed. Oh, oh, look, Bobby's going to believe. Now I'm going to choose him. Now they would say, well, that's not foreseen merit, but well, it's foreseen something. It's not based on any foreseen anything. In fact, what is it based off of according to that? His sovereign good pleasure. And if it's based on anything other than that, then it's not God's sovereignty. It's man's sovereignty. All right. Does everybody understand? Everybody remember that definition? Now, I'm just going to have to I'm going to have to rely on reading a lot of this so that we can all be on the same page. Grudem says and I quote, there has been much controversy in the church and misunderstanding over this doctrine. Would that be the understatement of the year of the century? I think there's been more than just there's been more than just controversy. There's downright war and fighting over it. And there's great misunderstanding of the doctrine. And let me make it very clear. I think the misunderstanding of the doctrine is the most irritating part. Everybody remember when I got kicked out of the, first, my, the Bible Institute I was in, I could no longer be a student because supposedly I was a Calvinist and I wasn't even a Cal, quote-unquote a Calvinist at the time. What made me so mad and what got me in so much trouble is not because of my embracing of quote-unquote Calvinism. What got me in trouble is all of the things they were saying about Calvinism wasn't true. So I was sitting there trying to correct Calvinism, which then in part made it look like I was a Calvinist, but I was trying to correct that there are lies. Like if you're going to disagree with a doctrine, at least understand what you disagree with. Is that too much to ask? So let me make it very clear. All right? 
I'm, I'm going to be very, I, I want, I, I'm going to get very practical here, all right? So now I'm going to preach, right? A little preaching right now, okay? And I don't think this is in your notes, so you may want to write this down. There, there can be disagreement over theology. There should never be misrepresenting a theology. You can disagree with a theology, but don't dare misrepresent it because of your misunderstanding. There is no excuse for that. Why is there no excuse for that in 2021? Do I? The internet. You can look up actual authoritative sources and go, what do they believe? If you misrepresent and misunderstand a theology, it's because you want to misrepresent it and you want to misunderstand it. There is no excuse for it. There was a time that you'd be like, man, I don't know exactly what those people believe. And you're like, okay, well, I could go buy a book, but that's $50 and I don't have the money for it. Or I could go try to find it in the public library. It took a little bit of work. In 2021, you can basically say, hey, Siri, and she'll tell you. Right? That I, I, I drives me crazy. There's no excuse for it. There's just no excuse for it. And, it. and nothing makes me more angry than to read Christians or listen to a sermon and they say, this is what so... Or, or I get an email from someone making some accusation about a theological position. And I'm like, could you just look it up? Disagreement is understandable. Yes? misrepresentation is not only is it not understandable, it's not acceptable. Don't say something about a theology until you know you understand it. And where do you, where do you always get your understanding from a theological position? From their point of view, not from the enemies of that point of view. Does that make sense? Right? If, you're, if you're going to criticize, our, you know, it, it doesn't matter what view, you've got to go listen to them. You've got to go listen to them. And that's one of the things I do a lot of times in the podcast. We go listen, like someone criticizes this pastor, I typically go and get the sermon from the pastor and then spend two weeks reviewing the sermon so that no one can say that I misrepresented it because I allowed the pastor to speak for himself. And that's the way... You have to do things, okay? Now, there's always the opportunity of being wrong, but you can, you, sh- you can always seek to fix it, all right? So, there should never be misunderstanding or misrepresentation. Many of the controversial questions regarding man's will and responsibility and regarding the justice of God with respect to human choice have been discussed in length when we talked about God's providence. Everybody remember that? Okay, I know that was a long time ago. We will focus here only on the additional questions that apply specifically to the question of election. All right. So what was the first thing we looked at in the doctrine of election? We simply asked, does the New Testament teach predestination? Right. And what did we find? We find that it did. What were some of the passages we we used? Acts 13.48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Acts 13, 48. All right. Uh, we also have Romans 8, 28 through 30, which we've already covered. Yes. Okay. Um, Romans 9, 11, speaking of whom? Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, nor because of works, but because of his call, she was told the elder shall serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay, and I'm, I'm quoting from the, ver- uh, the translation that he's using in the systematic theology. All right. Um, what other, what's the one big passage we looked at was Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Everybody remember that? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He, uh, he well, as this translation says, he destined us and love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay? Um, And we we looked at a lot more, so we definitely saw that the New Testament teaches it. Yes? There's no way to get around it. The New Testament teaches it. All right? 
And then, did we talk about how the New Testament presents the teaching of election? All right, that's what we're going to focus on here. All right, so, well, we'll, well, let me summarize, and then we'll, we'll move on to this point. Here we go. <clears throat> there is no question that the New Testament teaches election. Everyone acknowledges it teaches election. So let me make it very clear. No one denies that the New Testament teaches election. What is the debate when it comes to election? Do what? Okay. Everyone says the Bible teaches it. The issue is, how does it occur? Is it God making a sovereign choice? Or is it God choosing those whom choose him? That, first of all, that just is ridiculous to even, it's just ridiculous to even say it that way. God is choosing those who chose him just sounds absolutely foolish. But, the, it, that's the issue. So I want to make sure. There is, I don't have to spend forever arguing if the New Testament teaches it because everyone acknowledges it does and one of them make absolutely no sense. Alright, does that make sense? Now, <clears throat> if I don't lose my voice this morning, the question now, according to Grudem, is how does the New Testament t- present the teaching of election? After reading this list of verses on election, it is important to view this doctrine and the way the New Testament views it. Now, this is important. Some people may see the doctrine of election as being something horrific or horrible. And I can definitely understand. Let me make it very clear. All right, let, let's just... I, I always have to do this because if I don't do this, um, I'm going to get some kind of argument, and I just want to basically stop the argument before it even starts. Even if the doctrine of election didn't exist, if you read Genesis, you should already find yourself with 900 problems with Christianity, with God, and with the Bible. Right? Because let's remind, remind ourselves how it starts. In the beginning, God. If you believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, all of your problems start right there. Because you have an all-powerful, all-knowing God who does what? Creates. What does he create? Well, one of those things he creates would be Satan. Does he know Satan is going to rebel? Well, if he's all-knowing, he knows. Once Satan rebels, what can God do? Destroy him. Would it be just to destroy him? Yes. Okay. Does he destroy him? No. So, he creates Adam and Eve. God is all-knowing. Does he know what Adam and Eve is going to do? Yes. When Adam and Eve does it, what can he do? Destroy them. Does he? No. All right. Now, he know, Satan rebels. He doesn't destroy him, but does he have to allow him to come to earth? Even if he allows him to come to earth... Where could he keep him out of? But he lets him. He is used to tempt Eve. They sin. At that moment, he can stop everything, but he allows them to produce children who are now born with a... Okay, you can get upset about the doctrine of election. I don't know why it took you that long to get upset about something because you should have started getting upset as soon as you started reading your Bible. I still to this day don't understand how Christians read Genesis and don't stop going, wait a minute, what is going on here? Wait, because I read, in the beginning God created, and then the next thing you know, everything goes wrong, and I'm sitting there screaming at the Bible going, why didn't the one who created everything stop this from happening? But I'm not supposed to do that because I'm supposed to be a good you know, Christian and just read it and going, well, hey, praise God, this all makes sense. You're out of your mind if you think that. Does that not bother you? So then what conclusion can you arrive at? All part of God's plan. Now, if you're like, well, election bothers me, why would election bother you if that doesn't bother you? Does that make sense? It's like like selective outrage. I'm only going to be upset about a couple of things. Man, Election is the least of your problems, right? 
And so what some people do to get rid of the original problem, they say that God is not all-knowing. And that tries to... So now I have an all, a God that's not all-knowing. Before you know it, I don't have a God who's not really a God. And then, it, well, then, it, oh, yeah, it all becomes a problem. So just remember, all of our problems start in Genesis. By the time you get to election, you should be like, what else can you throw at me? Right? What else? So, the New Testament, does, I want to make it clear, does not present election as something bad. It presents it in the following ways. We're going to go through these quickly. Number one, as a comfort. New Testament authors often present the doctrine of election as a comfort to believers. When Paul assures the Romans that in everything God works for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28, He gives God's work of predestination as a reason why we can be assured of this truth. He explains the very next verse. Hey, God works all things according to his purpose. That's comfort, right? That's comforting. Why can, why is he given this kind of assurance? The very next verse, what does we, what do we find out? For those whom he foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and those whom he predestined, he also called, justified, and glorified. Paul's point is to say that God has always acted for the good of those whom he called to himself. If Paul looks into the distant past before the creation of the world, he sees that God foreknew and predestined his people to be conformed to the image of Christ. If he looks at the recent past, he finds that God called and justified his people whom he had predestined. And if he he then looks towards the future, when Christ returns, he sees that God has determined to give perfect glorified bodies to those who believe in Christ. From eternity to, to eternity, God has acted with the good of his people in mind. But if God has always acted for our good and will in the future act for our good, Paul reasons that there, that there then will be not also in our present circumstances work every circumstance towards together for our good as well. In this way, predestination is seen as a comfort for believers in everyday life. How is it a comfort? Because God has been at work, is at work, and will be at work all for those whom he foreknew, for those whom he predestined, for those whom he called. Doesn't everyone love to quote Romans 8.28? All things work together for good. First, not for everyone, for those who are called according to his purpose. The calling and purpose is the calling and purpose of predestination and election. That's the context, right? There's no way to get around that. I don't know what... It's like people are like, no, God, God, all things work together for good. Well, slow down. For God to work all things together for good would require God to be what? Sovereign. All-knowing. Which leads you right back to the problems that we find in Genesis 1. Yes? So, because he can't work together all things for the good unless those things, unless he is those things. All right? So it's a comfort. The second thing it is, it is a reason to praise God. Paul says he destined us or predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 through 6. Just go ahead and look at it so I want you to see it. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And this is done for what purpose? To the praise of his glory, of his grace, wherein he hath made us acceptable in the beloved. Right? It is, we should praise God for it. We should praise God for it. Now, why should we praise God for it? No, because it demonstrates His grace. Because God didn't elect you based on anything you did. It's because of grace. 
So it should bring comfort because it demonstrates God is in charge and working everything according to his good pleasure and will. And it should lead you to praise him because of his grace and mercy in electing you. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a bunch of other scriptures we could throw in here. If you look at Ephesians 1.12. Alright, if you go to 11, and, and, and whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being what? According to verse 11, Ephesians. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Get the idea? Okay. Alright, now. Third thing. So, what's the first two things the, uh, the New Testament presents election as being for? Comfort and a reason to praise God. And the third thing, which is what a lot of people deny, it's also presented as a motivation for evangelism. Look at 2 Timothy 2.10. Look at 2 Timothy 2.10 really quick. All right, uh, 2 Timothy 2.10. What do you read there? Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's, elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Did Paul suffer a lot of things? Yes. He suffered them all for whose sake? That they may what? Obtain salvation. Now, you know what motivated him to suffer all of those things? Because he knew that there were those out there who were what? The elect. And if there are people out there who are elect, what's the one thing you know about people who are elect? What is the one thing you know about people who are elect? They will be saved. And God uses means in order to save them. And what does that mean? The presenting of the gospel. So why should you not be motivated? Because you don't have to figure out if you're doing it right, saying the right words, have the right method, have the right trick, can win a debate. Your job is just to present the gospel, knowing that God's going to be the one doing the saving. So you shouldn't be worried about it, fearful of it. You should be motivated by it because it doesn't require anything other than you to open your mouth and present it. You present the gospel. Those who will believe will believe because of God. And we present the gospel to everyone. But the only one who will ultimately believe is to whom? The elect. So you get, it, a lot of Christians sometimes are fear, fearful to evangelize. Well, what if I say the wrong thing? You can't say the wrong thing to the elect. You can say something false, right? But you can't say something in a wrong way in the sense that it's not based off your skill. You're not trying to talk someone into salvation. You're not trying to debate someone into salvation. I, I don't have to debate you, manipulate you, trick you, corner you. I don't have to do any of that. I just present the gospel and whatever happens, happens because God is in charge. It should motivate us. Now, the reality is it doesn't always motivate because for some reason that's a whole different subject. Right? So what are three things, uh, election, how is it presented in the New Testament? As a comfort, a reason to praise God, and an encouragement or a motivation to evangelism. Now, what do we want to do here? Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to go down to one of the big... We've already talked about this one. Um, I'm going to go back to one of the... Now, what he wants to do is try to correct some misunderstandings about election. He wants to correct some misunderstandings. I'm not going to go through all of these misunderstandings. I'm going to go through the ones that I have heard the most. Right? And you probably all know which one we all hear the most. What's, what's the number one misunderstanding about the doctrine of election found in the evangelical church in 2021? What is it? Okay, yes. The, 
the whole, the biggest misunderstanding is that, look, when you argue with people about election, they can't, they can't tell you, well, the Bible doesn't teach election because they, it's all over them. I mean, what did we just read about Paul said? He endures all things for whose sake? The elect's sake. I mean, it's there, right? There's no way to get around it. Agreed? So there's no way to get around it. So then you have to find a way to go, okay, wait a minute. It can't mean what it appears to mean. And what it appears to mean is that God, before the foundations of the world, chose some people for salvation, and they can't accept that. But they can't throw out election because it's in the Bible. So what's their great grand solution? God chooses based off what? Our choosing. He chooses based off that, like, like, there's God. He doesn't have any choice, no election. Bobby becomes a Christian. It's like, okay, Bobby, I've elected you. Right, which makes absolutely no sense. It's just foolish, but this is common. So Grudem spends some time trying to destroy this idea, and since it's such a common idea, we're going to spend some time working on it again. All right, here we go. Here's the misunderstanding he wants to correct. Election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. Election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. Quite commonly... People will agree that God predestined sons to be saved, but they will say that he does this by looking into the future and seeing who will believe in Christ and who will not. If he sees that a person is going to come to saving faith, then he will predestinate that person to be saved based on foreknowledge of that person's faith. That is such an, uh, There's so many logical fallacies in this that it's hard to even unpack. All right, let, me, let me make it... A, what, is predest- what does the word predestination mean? To predetermine. If God looks through time to see what you're going to do and then pre- predestines you based off that, that's not God predetermining something. That's God reacting to what you're doing. So it would not be called predestination. It would be called post-destination, right? It would be like, okay, you, you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predestinate you after the fact. I mean, what is that? Well, what is that even called? I don't even know what that's called. It's definitely not predestination. Okay, it's, 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 it's called what? It's called, yeah, well, I think it's, it's more foolishness than heresy in the sense that I think people are just trying to come up with an explanation that makes them feel better. But it just makes no sense. If God, if God foresees your faith, then he would never predestinate you because he doesn't need to do anything. He already knows you're going to choose him. So what would be the point of predestination? It would make no sense, right? But this is so common. Yeah, I mean, like, like exactly. You could say God foreknows. God calls. God justifies. You wouldn't need the predestination part. The fact that the predestination part comes in is where everyone's argument falls apart because he's predetermining something. Predetermining it. He's doing the determination and he's doing it before, not after. So it it, it all falls apart. But this is what he says. Quite commonly, people will agree that God predestines some to be saved. But they will say that what he does, that he does this by looking into the future and seeing who will believe in Christ and who will not. If he sees that a person is going to come to saving faith, then he will predestinate that person to be saved based on foreknowledge of that person's faith. If he sees that a person will not come to saving faith, then he does not predestinate that person to be saved. And this way, it's thought, the ultimate reason why some are saved and some some are not lies within the people themselves, not within God. All... All that God does in the predestinating predestinating work is to give confirmation to the decision he knows people will make uh, on their own. The verse commonly used to support this view is Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. I don't know why they would quote that to prove their point, because that doesn't prove anything. That just determines that God knows and God predetermines. But what does God know? But in, in Romans 8.28, or Romans 8.29, what does he know in Romans 8.29? Everybody look at it. People. I'll make it again. For those whom he foreknew. It's people. 
It's not an action. It's people. I want to make it very clear. Okay, it's people. All right. Now, this is how Grudem is going to argue against it. Number one, it's a foreknowledge of persons, not facts. It's a foreknowledge of persons, not facts. And then he says, this verse can hardly be used to demonstrate that God based his predestination on foreknowledge of the fact that a person would believe. The passage speaks rather of the fact that God knew persons, those whom he foreknew, not that he knew some facts about them, such as the fact that they would believe. It is personal, relational knowledge that is spoken of here. God looking into the future through... uh, looking to the future, thought of certain people and saving relationship to him, and in that sense, he knew them long ago. This is the sense in which Paul can talk about God knowing someone, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8.3. But if one, if one loves God, one is known by him. In a similar way, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Galatians 4.9. When people know God in Scripture or when God knows them, it is personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. So in Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, it is better understood to mean those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. The text actually says nothing about God foreknowing or foreseeing a certain people uh, would believe, nor is the idea mentioned in any other text of Scripture. All right? So, everybody get the idea there? God didn't foreknow what you were going to do. He foreknew you. And He foreknew you in the idea of a saving relationship. But how, how is He going to get that foreknowledge of you in a saving relationship into reality? He's going to predestinate me. And then what is He going to do? Think of it. Election and predestination occurs where? In eternity. When does the calling occur? In time. Right? The, the uh, foreknowing and the predestination occurs way before there was even an earth. Calling occurs when you come on the scene at a specific time in your life. And that calling is accomplished through what? The proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. And then that leads to justification, and justification leads to glorification. God is in control of the entire process. Everything occurs through that way. For I'll give you an example, all right? Now, I'm praying and hoping and believing that what has occurred is true, but for those of those, I think most everyone here knows, that my sister obviously has had a long history of massive drug uh, addiction. Horrible drug addiction. And it got bad, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse until she found herself basically homeless in Michigan. Right? Bad. Uh, her, you know, her, her relationship with her daughter, her daughter won't talk to her, just been a horrible, horrible situation. Well, she found a job, and she met a girl who invited her to church. So Hope started going to church. She's now been clean for five months, and last night she was baptized. Now, if that is all, if, if, if salvation has occurred, that all occurred because of God's electing and predetermining her before the foundations of the world and utilize someone to be involved in the calling process because God uses our preaching to call. Does that make sense? But it had to happen at a certain time. So you can be elect and not yet saved, Right? You can be predestined and not yet saved until a specific time happens in calling. It's not that God knew that she would choose him. He chose her and then at the appropriate time works all things together for their good. Who's good? Those who are called. Let me make it. I'm going to challenge you here. God works all things together for good. I think that's in reference to your salvation. The election, the predestination, the calling, the justifying, and the glorifying. Everybody, of course, said, no, all things are going to work. You know, like, you know, you go home and your house is on fire and your Christians hop on you know, Facebook and say, oh, I'm sorry, your house is on fire. But remember, all things work together for good. So, I, so I'm, and that means I'm going to wake up tomorrow and my house is going to be rebuilt? No. In fact, it can be so bad that you end up bankrupt and homeless. 
So what does it mean that God works all things together for good? Electing you, predestining, predestinating you, calling you, justifying you, glorifying you. Doesn't that make a little sense considering what is immediately Paul does after he says all things work together for good? He explains how all things work together for good and how do they work together for good? By foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Now, I know if, if you go tell any of your Christian friends that, they're going to say that you're crazy. But I'm telling you, you've known Christians who, uh, well, you can try to, we, we always have to say, well, all things will work together for good, but that doesn't mean everything's going to work the way we, we always try to come up with some excuse. Well, what does it mean that all things are going to work together for good? Well, they work together for good in what purpose? Salvation. What is the ultimate good? Salvation. So I think that's the ultimate uh, context there. But it's not based off some foreseen faith. It's based on a specific time when God brings that person to salvation. Does that make sense? All right. Now, um, he, so that the first thing he says is that foreknowledge is of persons, not of facts. Second, Scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason God chose us. All right. Here we go. In addition, when we look beyond these specific passages that speak of foreknowledge and look at verses that talk about uh, the reason God chose us, we find that Scripture never speaks of our faith or the fact that we would come to believe in Christ as the reason God chose us. In fact, Paul seems explicitly to exclude the consideration of what people, of what people would do in life from his understanding of God's choice. And you, look, everybody can look at it, Romans 9, 11 through 13. Look at this really quick. Romans 9, 11 through 13. All right. And here, what do we have the story of? Jacob and Esau. Now, though they were not yet born, so let's go through this, right? Uh, Romans, uh, Romans 9, verse 11. Does it say that they were not yet born? All right. And that they had not done what else? Neither good or bad. So, before they were born, before they did good or bad, in order that what would happen? God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call, she was told. The elder will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have, Esau I have hated. Nothing that Jacob or Esau would do in life influenced God's decision. It was simply in order that his purpose of election might continue. So why did he choose one over the other? Not based on anything they would do. Why did God choose you? Not based on anything you would do. That's the doctrine of election. And, and to imply something else, it doesn't become election. It becomes something other than election. Because election by nature is someone making that choice. Does that make sense? When discussing the Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ, Paul says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Look at Romans 11, 5 through 6. Romans 11, 5 through 6. What do you find here? Romans 11, 5 through 6. Even so then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, and it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, there is no more grace. Otherwise, works is no more work. And he's referring here to the remnant of Israel. God chose them by grace. And if God chose you by election and grace then it cannot be based on anything you do. Or it stops being grace and it becomes works, right? Now, this is very important. This is very important. All right? If you believe in libertarian free will, like full-blown free will, like you're basically a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, and you say that Bobby believed and it's not a work of God, then who gets credit for believing? Bobby. 
Now, sometimes you'll, you'll have your Christian friends who hate Reformed theology or Calvinism say, no, 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 no. No, God did that. Well, if God did that, why doesn't God do that for everyone? So therefore, you can't say that it was God that caused Bobby to believe. Bobby believed because Bobby chose on his own. That means it was a work of Bobby. Therefore, his salvation is not based off grace. It's based off a work that Bobby did. And what work did Bobby do? Therefore, it's no longer grace. That's one of the biggest arguments against the non-reformed position. And they say, no, 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 no. Not believing is not a work. Well, then who did it? God. Well, the minute you say God, well, then the question is, why doesn't God do that work in everyone? And so, well, he tries to do it in everyone, and they can resist. Well, that means if you didn't resist, who didn't resist? You. It still comes back to something you did. But election is not based off what you do. It's based off grace. Does that make sense? Right? That, that's, that's the point that Grudem is trying to make here. It becomes absolutely critical. Um, here again, Paul emphasizes God's grace and the complete absence of human merit in the process of election. Someone might object that faith is not viewed as a work in Scripture and therefore faith should be excluded from the quotation above. It is no longer on the basis of works. Based on this objection, Paul could actually mean, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, but rather on the basis of whether someone would believe. However, this is unlikely in this context. Paul is not contrasting human faith and human works. He is contrasting God's sovereign choosing of people with any human activity. And the point to God's sovereign will as the, and he points to God's sovereign will as the ultimate basis for God's choice of the Jews who have come to Christ. Right? In a similar way, Paul talks about election in Ephesians. There are no mentions of any foreknowledge of the fact that he would believe or any idea that there was anything worthy or would earn any merit in us, such as a tendency to believe. That was the, uh, that was the basis for God's choosing us. Rather, Paul says that he predestined us in love to be his sons according through, uh, uh, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Look at Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, that you can see that really quick. Everybody see it? And why did he choose? Why did he predestinate us? Good pleasure of his will. Everybody see that? The good pleasure of his will. And we could go through more scriptures, but you get the point. So, his argument is this. Election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. How do we know this? Foreknowledge is of persons, not of facts. Number two, scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason God chose us. So far, so good? All right. Then, I'm not going to go through a long, a long list here, but the third thing he argues, election based on something good in us, say our faith, would be the beginning of salvation by merit, not salvation by grace. And I've already argued that. Agreed? If, if God elects me based on something good in me, like my faith, then, I, then it's salvation based off merit, not off grace. And we have to defend salvation by grace, not by merit. Okay, now I've got, all right, here we go. Now these, oh, I want to I finish this one. This is the one I want to finish, all right? Everybody, everybody ready? Um, predestination, based on foreknowledge, still would not give people free choice. Even if you argued that predestination is based off foreseen faith, it still would not give someone a freedom of choice or free will. And we're going to listen to see how he makes this argument. All right? Let me read that point again so that everyone can have it down. Predestination based on foreknowledge still does not give people free choice. Right. Give me one second here. I'm going to make sure. That there's, okay, I want to make sure no one had left a question or anything. Okay. 
Predestination, based on foreknowledge, still does not give people free choice. Got your thinking caps on? Here we go. The idea that God's predestination of some to believe is based on foreknowledge of faith encounters with still another problem. Upon reflection, this system turns, turns out to give no real freedom to man either. For if God looked into the future and sees that person, that person A will come to faith in Christ, and that person B will not come to faith in Christ, then those facts are already fixed and already determined. Right? He wouldn't have to predetermine it because God knows it, and if God knows it, what God knows, what? What is true about what God knows? What is true about what God knows? It's perfect knowledge. Right? And if it's perfect knowledge, what he knows has to happen. So if God looks through time and sees that Bobby's going to choose him, Bobby has no choice but to choose him because God knows it before Bobby does it. What always exists before any of your actions? God. And if God knows the action, then Bobby has no choice but to carry out the action because God knows it was going to happen. So you still destroy free will. So why, where does this lead people to turn to then? When you present this argument to them, what do they typically run to? God doesn't know. This is where open theism comes in. They can't have a God who knows because a God who knows beforehand that I would lose my choice. And so they're more worried about defending free, free choice than they are in defending the truth of Scripture. Alright, so let me read that again. The idea that God's predestination of some, of some to believe is based on foreknowledge of their faith encounters with a still another problem. Upon reflection, this system turns out to give no real freedom to man either. For if God can look into the future and see that person A will come to faith in Christ and that person B will not come to faith in Christ, then those facts are already fixed and they are already determined. If we assume that God's knowledge of the future is true, which it must be, then it is absolutely certain that person A will believe and that person B will not. There is no way that their lives could turn out any different than this. Therefore, it is fair to say that their destinies are determined for they could know other, because they could not be otherwise. But by what are these destines determined? If they are determined by God himself, then we no longer have election based ultimately on foreknowledge of faith, but rather on God's sovereign will. But if those destinies are not determined by God, then who, who or what determines them? Certainly no Christian would say that there is some powerful being other than God controlling people's destinies. Therefore, it seems that the only other possible solution is to say they are determined by some impersonal force, some kind of fate operative in the universe, making things turn out as they do. But what kind of benefit is that to us? We, we have then sacrificed election and love by a personal God for a kind of determinism by an impersonal force, and God is no longer to be given the ultimate credit for our salvation. So really, you got three, you got three ideas. Here's how it works. Either God is the one who determines all things and works all things together for good, or God isn't in charge, doesn't know everything, and so you have some other impersonal force, the force from Star Wars out there making everything happen, which then that destroys Christianity. Or, what's the third option? I make it happen. I determine what happened. Well, if I'm the one who determines what happens, well, then God can't be the one making, determining that all things work together for good because it would be me who determines all things work together for good. Right? God either has to be in charge because the minute you start destroying his being in charge, then someone else has to be in charge, which would be me. God can't make all things work together for good without being in charge and knowing everything and involved in everything. There's no other way for it to work. Correct? Even if you just reduce all things work together for good just to salvation, it would require God to be in charge. Yes? 
So th- those are your three options. God, some impersonal force, or you. Well, I know all of you. Y'all have a hard enough time making it through a day. So I don't think you're much in charge of anything, right? Okay, I, I, I don't, I'm going to call you into question that you're the one making all things work together for good. Whatever, whatever. Is that okay or did that offend everybody? All right, okay. All right, now, so what's the conclusion? Election is unconditional. It seems best for the previous four reasons to reject the idea that election is based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. We conclude instead that the reason for our election is simply because of God's sovereign choice. He predestined us in love to be his sons, Ephesians 1.5. God chose us simply because he decided to bestow his love upon us. It was not because of any foreseen faith or merit in us. This understanding of election has traditionally been called what? Unconditional election. It is unconditional because it is not conditioned upon anything that God sees in us to make us worthy of his choosing us. So let me go back through this. Everybody ready? Okay. Quick summary. All right. The the misunderstanding that has to be corrected here, I've got to find it, if I can find it in my notes. Not that one. Here we go. Election is not based on God's foreknowledge of our faith. Why do we reject that? Number one, foreknowledge is of persons, not of facts. Number two, Scripture never speaks of our faith as the reason God chose us. Number three, election based on something good in us, say our faith would be the beginning of salvation by what? Merit. And then number four, predestination based on foreknowledge would still not give people free choice. Therefore, what is the conclusion? Election is what? Unconditional. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. Everyone believes in election. Everyone does. The difference is they believe election is either what? What's what's the distinction? Everyone believes in election, but they believe an election is either what? Conditional or unconditional. And, if, and that just, you see all the problems with making it conditional, right? Either you have a salvation by merit, or you have me ultimately choosing God. And then therefore God is not in charge. And Romans 8.28 starts this entire section, says all things work together for those... All, work, all things work together for, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's God in charge. And how does he make all things work together for good? In saving us. How does God save us? He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He will glorify us. And therefore, we are called the elect. And because we are God's elect, what can, what can not happen? No charge can be brought against me because I'm one of God's elect and therefore I am saved by him, by his grace, by his imputed righteousness and nothing can separate me from the love of God and no one can make any accusation against me. Now, they can make an accusation against me practically, but they can't make an accusation against me that has any weight eternally because I am covered in the work, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? All right, any questions about that? All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning, a a very difficult time trying to make up for over a month of of being removed from this study, Uh, but I pray that somehow we were able to review and catch us up so that we have a better understanding of this very, very important doctrine. We obviously could not answer every objection in one sermon, so I know I'll get all kinds of emails for people arguing against this. But I pray, Lord, that they would consider everything that we have taught up to this point and that whatever questions they ask, they ask in a way that will give us the ability to try to answer them and that we can all grow in our understanding of the great salvation that is your work, not our work. Therefore, you deserve the glory. You deserve the praise. And even though we're fast approaching Thanksgiving this year, 
the thing that we should be thankful for every day of the year is such a great salvation bestowed upon such undeserving people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said,